Hey there, and welcome to episode 40 of IoT This Week. I am your host, Craig Smith. This week, we have drone hijacking, hidden malware, IoT in space, more memcached, McDonald's tech, and the OWASP IoT project, and much more on IoT This Week. All right, so or while we had a shortage of IoT stories last week, we seem to have an overabundance of them this week. So to get things started, we have a smart camera alliance, which is called NICE, and that stands for the Network of Intelligent Camera Ecosystem Alliance. So this um, group has been put together by Sony, Nikon, uh, Foxconn, a communication technology provider called Wistron, and some other companies and what they're looking to do is um, create a unified ecosystem for security cameras. So they want to bring together all these disparate camera manufacturers and, and put together some kind of common platform, it sounds like. So a lot of times, like, people will have, and I know quite a few people, they have, like, one room might have a Nest Cam, one might have, I don't know, a D-Link camera or something, or some other security camera. Because usually people end up buying these things when they're on sale or they just happen to think about them or whatever. Um, and also a lot of these cameras, they have their own um, cloud system behind it. So like Nest has got theirs. Um, D-Link, I think, has got theirs. Um, I think there's one High View or something like that that has theirs. So I think what they're hoping to do is be able to make these cameras kind of interoperable with each other. Now, whether that'll happen or not, since a lot of these companies are making money off of subscriptions, um, for example, when you want to upload streaming video or save streaming video, or if the camera goes off because motion is detected and it saves you know, 10, second, 10 seconds of video to the cloud, usually these things are subscription-based. So I'm not sure whether these companies would want to put together a common f platform that these things can all work with and... Uh, still be able to share revenue and make money off of it, um, but we'll see. Maybe they'll get along and actually do something that is more focused towards making things easier for the consumer rather than just trying to make a buck off of it, but we'll see. And then we have an interesting line by James Dyson. So if you don't know who James Dyson is, he's the founder of Dyson who makes the crazy expensive vacuum cleaners. Although from what I hear, I've, I've never never purchased one. Although what I hear is they're worth every penny. Um, not really sure I'd want to pay you know four or five hundred dollars for a vacuum cleaner. But anyway, so one of the things he came out and said last week was that he didn't think it was necessary for every device to be connected. So that runs a little contrary to what it seems to be, where everybody every device known to man, um, the manufacturers want to actually connect it to the internet. So what he's, and the reason why he said this um, is that what he thinks um, products sh or devices should do is actually be able to do things on their own. So at this point where, where what he's talking about is automation. So instead of using a mobile app or whatever to control the device via the internet or whatever and just make a device like, I don't know, a toothbrush or whatever just connected to the internet for the sake of saying it's connected to the internet, he actually wants to make these things um, 
includes some kind of automation. So they do these things. A device will do things on its own that you need to do. So you don't actually have to do anything with it. So it just, it just you know, you just hook it up and it works. So, I mean, it still may be connected to the Internet at some point. It probably will to get updates and so forth. But he makes an interesting point to where you just buy a device for whatever purpose and it simply does what you wanted to do without having to deal with a mobile app or anything like that. So pretty interesting comments. And speaking of making things a bit easier for consumers, Amazon now has what they call a follow-up mode for Alexa. So essentially what you can do is say, Alexa, you know, play some music or whatever, and then follow it up with something like, you know, what's the size of the sun, a question or something like that without having to say Alexa again. So that's a pretty interesting enhancement. Uh, makes it a little easier to use the uh, Alexa device. All right, so the next story is something we kind of bring up on a frequent basis, and it's about um, farmers and their connected tractors. So to give some backstory, uh, a lot of these tractors, or a lot of the modern, modern tractors and farm equipment on, on large commercial farms, a lot of these things are now connected. They're software-driven and so forth, and they cost a lot. So one of the things... Um, that we've mentioned in the past is that a lot of times the manufacturers like John Deere and so forth, they don't, they have end user license agreements that don't let farmers modify the software or do anything to the software. So the tractor breaks um, or it just quits working because of some software issue, they have to go and take it to a licensed um, repair facility which often means they have to take it uh, long distance away because there's not a lot of these light, the repair, repair facilities um, around the country. Uh, that means downtime for them, lost money, et cetera. So one of the things they've been doing is going, or you know, basically put together like a piracy group. And I think it was, um, they were using some kind of hack software that's coming out of Ukraine so that they could make their own repairs to the tractors and get them going again whenever they um, needed repairs or whatever. Or maybe they wanted to do something that um, the software wasn't allowing them to do or whatever. So anyway, so there's been a lots of back and forth between the farmers and John Deere, for example. And obviously one of the things that comes, one of the things that uh, I haven't mentioned in the past that comes out of this, I mean, these, these tractors, obviously they're connected. And since they're software driven, they're generating lots and lots of data. So, Motherboard, the site motherboard.com, they've been doing an expose on um, Internet of Things and, and farmers. And one of the things that came out of that is that all the data that these connected tractors are generating, most of it's going to the companies that make the equipment and other third-party companies like seed and fertilizer companies. So even though these farmers are paying huge amounts of money for these tractors, um, they're not a lot, and they're getting the, obviously they're getting the benefit of the tractor doing what it needs to do, like plowing the dirt and, you know, planting or harvesting and whatever, but they're not getting a lot of the benefits that come out of collecting all this data, like, you know, taking the data that's generated from the tractors and overlaying that on top of weather patterns or whatever. Um, and one of the things, one of the other things that came out of this expose that Motherboard's doing, a lot of times the folks that buy these tractors, they don't really have a lot of choice when it comes to agreeing to these end-user license agreements. Um, 
because basically a lot of the companies say, you know, you either have to agree with it or don't use our tractor. And a lot of time, and one of the one of the funny ones I heard or saw in the, or read in the article was that a lot of times the what triggers agreement to the end user license agreement is simply turning the key to start these tractors. So once you do that, um, then you've basically accepted the manufacturer's rules on what can happen to the data that's collected from the using the tractor and you know whatever other data um, comes along with it so again it's an interesting thing um, something a lot of people probably don't realize that a lot of the modern tractors a day are a lot of that software driven and collect huge amounts of data that can be beneficial to not only the manufacturers but also the farmers themselves but um, like I said earlier, it seems like a lot of that data is not making it back to the farmers who obviously need it. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if there is some way for the farmers to get it, but I'm sure the manufacturers want them to pay for it or whatever. So so the whole um, smart tractor story continues to be an interesting one. So it's definitely something to follow along. And it may be something that, um, you know, set some precedence. Whatever comes out of this may set precedence for the data that's generated from um, lots of other connected devices. So it'll be, like I said, it'll be interesting to watch. So I thought this next article would be interesting from the aspect of hacking a drone. So what this article went into was trying to hijack a DJI Spark drone. So what they look at is they look at the WebSocket server. They try to reverse encryption algorithms they can find. They try to take apart the interface that's available. And what they ultimately did um, was that they did find a way actually to hijack the drone. So if you're not familiar with drones, a lot of times they have their own um, dedicated remote controllers, but you can also connect to the drones via, via Wi-Fi. So you'll flip the Wi-Fi hotspot on or, or whatever on the drone device, and then you basically go into your phone and look for that Wi-Fi hotspot, connect to it with a password or whatever, and then you can fly the drone um, through your through the screen on your phone. So what they ultimately did, they found a way to actually change the password for the Wi-Fi hotspot on the drone. And at that point, they were able to connect up to the drone using the using their iPhone with the change password and then taking control of the zone of the drone. So the owner of the drone didn't know that they were changing the password. Uh, and I guess I imagine the drone owner would have simply realized that they've lost control of the drone. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, if somebody's able, if the, the hack works and the attacker is able to connect the drone, then they'd simply, I guess, be able to fly off with the drone. Now, there, a lot of times there's, Safeguards building the drone, like if they lose connection with the remote controller, and a lot of times they'll fly back to wherever their home base was. So um, it'd be interesting to try this on my own to see if this worked, um, since I just did buy a drone um, to see if the, something similar could be done. But anyway, I thought it was just an inter interesting article on hijacking, hijacking drones. So what would a podcast be without some mention of malware? So apparently there's some malware that's been hiding and hiding and spreading through routers for the last six years. So it's called Slingshot, again, because we have to name everything. Um, and it's something that was discovered by Kaspersky Labs. They put together a 25-page report on it. 
Um, they suspect that due to the high sophistication of the malware, and they actually said this is um, the most or one of the most sophisticated pieces of malware they've seen, and they suspect it's been put together by a nation state given the level of complexity that's involved in this malware. And one of the one of the examples of complexity or sophistication that they mentioned was that the malware would actually turn parts of itself off if it detected um, scanning tools that were looking for um, malicious code or whatever. So if that's the case, then uh, yeah, that's pretty sophisticated. But anyway, um, yeah, slingshot malware that's been uh, been running through routers unnoticed for six years apparently so yeah we'll see where this ends up and then like i mentioned uh, the beginning of the podcast iot in space so it looks like a company called utel sat communications is putting a nano satellite so i don't know exactly how big a nano satellite is i mean i think they're actually pretty small um comparatively speaking to a lot of the ones you see in the news um, but anyway, so they're putting up a uh, nano satellite, which is going to enable communications um, for various IoT devices from low Earth orbit. So pretty cool to uh, see where this ends up. All right, so that was quite a few stories on IoT. So let's move on to InfoSec, where the theme of the day seems to be cryptocurrency mining, malware, memcached, and uh, more malware. So the first story up, 50,000 WordPress sites are found or were found to be infected with cryptocurrency mining malware. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the infections happen through vulnerable code and WordPress plugins since that usually seems to be the to be the way into um, attacking a lot of these sites. Um, but it looks like the as far as the cryptocurrency mining malware goes, it looks like a majority of it is going back to CoinHive. As I've mentioned in past podcasts, if you're not blocking coinhive.com, then you definitely want to do that, um, which would probably stop a majority of this right now, um, at least in the short term. Um, yeah, just a uh, yeah, just a, another issue with WordPress sites. So definitely, if you've got a WordPress site, um, check your plugins. Um, and also, I guess one of the things, actually one of the, now I think of one of the things I'm actually doing now um, on my site is actually having alerts, if you don't already have alerts set up for when your processors spike, like if they all of a sudden start running for 100%, at 100% for, you know, 10 or 30 minutes at a time, then you probably want to look into that and make sure you don't have anything um, like cryptocurrency mining malware um, on your web server. So definitely... Uh, you've got a WordPress site, definitely keep a lookout for those things like that. So next up, if you recall the NSA dump from last year, so not only did that dump include hacking tools and zero-day exploits that the NSA used for you know various purposes, um, it also had tools in there for tracking various hacking operations outside of the U.S. So I guess that makes sense if you think about it. I mean, if you're going to have tools for hacking using zero to ex zero day exploits you're probably going to use those you know hack the hackers and you know you want to be able to track those guys as well i assume if you're the nsa i guess you want to track everybody but uh yeah pretty interesting um, new research from the nsa dump so a few more mem stories if we haven't had enough of that already 
So there, I think it was last week, actually, there was was some DDoS exploit code released for a memcached, and I think it inc- already included like thousands of vulnerable servers you could take advantage of. And then someone came out with what they're calling a kill switch, which essentially flushed the contents of memcached. So it got rid of all the keys in cache and their values. And then the other thing we had was a tool released that would actually, so it didn't, um, it wasn't a tool for doing DDoS attacks, but it was a tool for dumping the cache um, of memcached host. And the, the cool part was that it actually used Shodan to identify the vulnerable host and then ran the script against those vulnerable hosts to dump the cache. So if you're into experimenting, um, what you probably could find by running a tool such as that, you know, not the not the uh, DDoS tool, but the dumping of the cache. Um, if you're an adventurous type, you could probably uh, find some pretty interesting things um, as it pertains to vulnerable memcached host. And then it looks like Windows Defender actually did some good. So apparently, according to Microsoft, um, they were able to prevent what they're calling a massive coin mining malware outbreak. So it looks like the majority of the outbreak was detected in Russia with some detections in Turkey and the Ukraine. But according to Microsoft, they were able to use machine learning models and... They were able to block the threat from this malware within milliseconds of it being flagged by Windows Defender. So, um, yeah, pretty interesting. And I think that's probably, ultimately, that's what it's going to take to actually fight a lot of this malware because it's it rapidly changes. And just having um, malware detection or virus detection or whatever that's just signature base is usually too slow. So that's ultimately probably what will help save save some of us from uh, being infected with malware or ransom or whatever. Is that there's machine learning running behind it on whatever on what on, on whatever you know anti malware anti virus solution you might be running. So yeah, pretty interesting. That uh, actually I didn't realize that, but it makes sense that um, I didn't realize that Microsoft was actually using machine learning models. Um, in conjunction with Windows Defender, but um, yeah, actually pretty cool. And then to throw in a little bit on the ransomware front, so it looks like a survey was done of nearly 1,200 um, IT security practitioners and, I guess, decision makers across 17 countries, and apparently this survey revealed that half the people who fell victim to ransomware infections were able to recover their files um, after they paid the ransom demand. But what that really means is that half of the victims were not able to recover their files even after paying the ransom. So I think, um, in short, the the moral of this story is to make sure your data is backed up and it's backed up all the time. Make sure the backups work and you can actually recover from backups. And... If you do get infected by ransomware, assuming you have good, reliable backups, uh, you probably don't have to worry about paying a ransom. So, you know, whether you get your data back or not after that um, didn't really matter. So, yeah, back your data up. And finally for InfoSec, and I guess in an effort to not left be left behind in the um, cryptocurrency mining, apparently ISPs now in some countries are being caught injecting 
um, script for cryptocurrency miners and spyware. So apparently they've identified governments in Turkey and Syria that have been caught doing this. Um, hopefully this is just an isolated incident, but somehow I think it's not. So people who can get away with it um, are probably going to try and get away with it as long as they can. So, um, yeah, now it's not just uh, ransomware or malware. Um, criminals, now it's uh, ISPs trying to get into the cryptocurrency mining um, fray. So, yeah, um, keep a lookout for that. So on to the tech portion of the podcast then. So this next story was rather interesting and a little humorous all at the same time. So apparently the U.S. Navy is caught up in a software piracy lawsuit. So the rather humorous humorous part is the scale of what this appears to be. So apparently there's a company called BitManagement. The U.S. Navy bought some software from those guys. And they purchased licenses for 38 computers, so 38. And my assumption is the software vendor did some kind of audit, and and apparently they found that it had been installed on 100,000 computers um, instead of the 38 that licenses had been purchased for. So, so the the uh, obviously the companies filed suit against the U.S. government, and you know, for hundreds of millions of dollars in, in damages, which unless there's something odd going on with this, it doesn't, this seems like a pretty open and shut case, to be honest, especially if, especially at that scale, um, you know, you buy 38 licenses and then you put it on a hundred thousand computers. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty egregious. And the state of Washington has become the first state in the United States to pass their own net neutrality law since the FCC is dismantling the net neutrality laws at a federal level. So we'll see how this goes. Um, the FCC has said in the past that states don't have the authority to supersede the FCC's dismantling of net neutrality laws. So it's really up to the, the uh, federal government now to see, if, see how hard they're going to push back or if they're going to push back at all on states. Um, that passed their own net neutrality laws. So definitely something interesting to watch and see how it turns out. And then, as I mentioned last week, um, in regards to a company that was selling um, iPhone unlocking software basically by using uh, vulnerabilities they discovered and had not reported to Apple. So instead of these vulnerabilities being fixed, they're basically monetizing vulnerabilities found um, for their own profit and providing these unlocking services via vulnerabilities to um, local or to government agencies and local law enforcement law enforcement agencies and so forth. So apparently, there's another company called Grayshift, which uh, appears to be run by a an ex, ex Apple security engineer, and they are also selling iPhone unlocking software. And they're actually selling this unlocking software to local police agencies, state or uh, state and local police agencies, instead of like the federal government. So I mentioned in the past podcast my opinion on this. I think it's basically I think it's wrong that they're hoarding vulnerabilities and using them to make money off of instead of reporting them to Apple so they can be fixed, because ultimately these vulnerabilities will get leaked somehow. Um, you know, they'll get leaked six months, a year down the road, 
And next thing you know, they're in the hands of criminals and other people who want to use them to their advantage. So, you know, we're a year down the road and, you know, instead of this vulnerability of being fixed when it could have been, if it had initially been, um, or if they'd initially let Apple know that there was a vulnerability that needs to be fixed. So instead of being fixed, um, you know, it's a year down the road and now other people have taken advantage of it. So I just think it's a... Uh, for the for the consumers, it's a uh, it's a complete um, lose situation, and like I said, I just don't agree with it at all. And yeah, really, I rarely talk about McDonald's in the news, but um, if you happen to go into McDonald's, you know you'll notice that they continually continue to add various technology to their services. Um, so I've got opinions on why they're doing that. Uh, most people can probably figure that out from themselves based on experiences from McDonald's. You know, one example is they've been doing drive throughs now for God knows how long, and they still can't get it right. You put an order in, and usually that means you get a random order of who knows what. So anyway, they're adding technology. Um, apparently this is stressing the McDonald's employees out because they're adding this new technology, and, you know, it's added it's added complexity that um, these employees need to learn and so forth. So like I said, um, if you've been to McDonald's, you can probably figure out why, figure out why this um, new technology is stressing them out. But again, if I'm McDonald's, um, given the caliber of employees that work at McDonald's, you can probably see why they're being stressed out because I wouldn't be surprised if McDonald's is, basically trying to use this tech to replace employees as much as they can because they just can't seem to get it right when hiring employees. Uh, maybe it's the money they paid, who knows what. Um, you know, restaurants like Chick-fil-A seem to be able to uh, do it right and have decent employees and get orders right. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting to, uh, if you go, I don't ever go into McDonald's, but um, if you go in there, they do have, um, like, kiosk you can order from. They've got the uh, mobile orders and so forth that a lot of other um, restaurants have now. Um, but, yeah, McDonald's, uh, McDonald's employee is getting stressed out, so that's probably a good thing, actually. And then, last but not least, let's talk a bit about the OWASP IoT project for 2018. So this project's something that Daniel Meisler and I put together um, a few years ago to kind of give a, some guidelines on security or a roadmap for um, various um, groups like manufacturers or consumers or developers. So we're getting things going for 2018, so we're looking to put together a couple of new top 10 lists. And if you're interested in, in joining, um, just uh, go to the main OWASP Slack, and then you can join the Pound IoT-Security channel. And, yeah, you can meet up there. We're actually, like I said, we just had a meeting a couple days ago. And we're going to be having another meeting in a couple of weeks. So definitely if you're interested in being involved with the project or contributing to it or just adding suggestions or whatever, um, definitely you know get on there and um, catch up with everybody who's involved currently with the um, IoT project. Um, yeah, should be some good stuff coming out for 2018. All right, that is the podcast for this week. As always, I can be reached on the Twitters at CraigZ28, or you can email me at podcast at iotthisweek.com. 
that's it for this week, guys. Um, hope everybody has a great week, and uh, we'll talk to you later.